You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Respond, Following the Lord of Life. In this series from the Gospel of Matthew, we learn to be grounded in the presence, promises, and power of Jesus, finding faith to follow the Lord of Life as He makes all things new again. You can follow along with today's reading on the back or inside your bulletin, which also has a list of upcoming events on the back, like our church landscaping work day, and also, ladies, our women's gift exchange. Yeah, if you've got our app, you can see lots more info in the app version of our bulletin. Also, after this service, visit our special table in the lobby to learn how you can donate gifts to help low-income families in our community with a dignified Christmas shopping experience. Now hear the word of the Lord. But Jesus knew what they were planning, so he left that area, and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Look at my servant, whom I have chosen. He is my beloved, who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious, and his name will be the hope of all the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Uh, I don't appreciate the cheers for the women's gift exchange, just to be clear. So we're going to have a men's meat swap. Tuesday night, midnight. I don't know. So anyway, the joke's over. Uh, my name's Joan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Um, by way of, uh, I guess, honesty and, and transparency, I will need to begin this by just acknowledging that Jesus, who we're here to worship and learn from and hopefully be transformed by and into, uh, Jesus uh, is often strange to me. Uh, he, he disorients me. Uh, he does what I would not expect in ways that I would not choose. I can only imagine what it felt like for people in his day. If you've ever been confused uh, in your Christian faith, just recognize you've had 2,000 years of people thinking and writing and reflecting on the things that are confusing to you now. What must it have been like when you were 10 years post-resurrection? The passage that was read for us, particularly the first several verses, uh, verses oh, 15 to 17, I guess, they're just absolutely jarring to me. But they fit, fit in well with what we've been talking about for the last several weeks here in our journey through Matthew's Gospel, where we've been trying to answer the question, who is this man? Who, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, chapters 11 through 12 provide us with these pictures of Jesus to hopefully help us answer that question. The passage begins by rooting us in something that happened last week. Verse 15 says, But Jesus knew what they were planning. 
This is referring to verse 14 from last week, where it says that the Pharisees had hatched a plot to kill Jesus. I want you to think for a second, if you can remember a time where you've been betrayed. Some close to you hurt you. Someone you were trying to help did something painful to you. You were really trying to do something kind to them, help them, serve them, and they betrayed you, stabbed you in the back, hurt by someone you tried to love. How did you respond, rhetorically? Right? How did you respond? How did you respond in your head? What thoughts did you think? What if, what if that same person was trying to hurt, betray, do something to one of your kids? Not just to you, but also to one of your children. And how might you respond in that kind of a scenario if you had absolutely unlimited resources? Supernatural powers. You see what I'm setting you up for right now? I mean, this is the situation we find ourselves in with the God of the universe. We leave, verse 14, they want to kill Jesus. And verses 15 and following gives us his response. And he just doesn't do what I would expect. Verse 15 and 16 continues... So Jesus left that area, and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. These are one of the passages in the Bible that makes me so aggravated. Uh, Matthew Henry is a famous Bible commentator. Commentary is people thinking thoughts about the Bible and trying to help us understand them. Matthew Henry, I was reading what he thought about this passage because I was so aggravated by it, and he put my discomfort and frustration with it well. Uh, Matthew Henry writes, he could have secured himself, that's Jesus, by secure himself, he could have kept himself safe, responded to the plot to be executed. He says he could have secured himself by miracle. Now pause there for a second. Is that not what we want? Am I the only one who wants that? Y'all remember the Captain Marvel movie? This is what just what came to my mind. And it's like, she's got powers. It's a superhero movie, so some of y'all aren't into that. But Captain Marvel gets these powers, and we're not sure how tough she really is, or what can she really do. She doesn't really know what she can do, and at the end, there's a spaceship that comes down. It's going to destroy the Earth, and like, she goes on cosmic fire and like flies through the spaceship and just destroys it. Y'all, anybody remember that scene? You know what I'm saying? Like, Aren't there times where you want Jesus to just go like super cyan and like launch his power and just crush people through miracle? You want to kill me? Oh, okay. Let me show you something. He could have secured himself by miracle, Matthew Henry writes. But he chose to secure himself in the ordinary way of flight and retirement. Jesus went away. He left. And he goes to more sick people. Like at some point, are we not expecting the revolutionary Messiah to go to the place of power? At some point, will you go to Jerusalem and get on with it? Like, if you were expecting this one to come and relieve your oppression and change the world, at some point, could you please go to someplace a little more noteworthy? And 
in response to these people who were planning to kill him, Jesus just goes back out to the boonies, hanging out with people that most of us would be quick to overlook, certainly quick to not spend any time with. It's so confusing to me. And I really, this is speculative, I just don't think we were the, were the first people to be confused by it. I think Matthew thought this was strange because right after explaining this in verse 17, he says this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Uh, almost, almost to our confusion, Matthew's implying, I know you're confused. I know you wouldn't do it this way, but this is the plan. This is what has been promised. Something has not gone sideways. And what follows is the longest Old Testament quote in the Gospel of Matthew. It's almost centrally placed in the middle of the book. It's the longest quote. And remember, we've talked about how much Matthew communicates in the structure of his writing by placing this quote where he has and the length of it. This is Matthew trying to say to us, pay close attention. Look at this. If you want to know who is Jesus and what is he up to, this is a fantastic place to go to answer that question. So we want to work through this kind of slowly here in Matthew chapter 12. It's straight quoting from Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4. And we'll do crowd participation with the first one. Verse 18 and again, this is quoting Isaiah. He says, Look at my servant, whom I have chosen. He's my beloved, who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Does this sound familiar to anything else we've heard in the Gospel of Matthew to this point? Any stories come to mind? Look at my servant, who pleases me. The baptism of Jesus. It's, it's almost a direct quote from what God says to, over his son at his baptism. This, in, in some ways, this one verse is a perfect summary of Matthew chapters 1 through 10. I mean, everything we've gone to through the life of Jesus up to this point. So I think it clearly echoes the baptism of Jesus. My servant, my beloved, in whom is all my delight, I will put my spirit on him. And this is so often the case, Jesus will go and teach something and then embody that teaching. So he goes from the baptism to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, he comes announcing a kingdom and how we live virtuously in that kingdom. That's justice. When you see the saying, he will proclaim justice to the nations, biblical justice is the proper ordering of society. It's, Jesus will pre say this, pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Biblical justice is when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you're curious, what does it mean to work for justice? It means, do you care that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? This is the kind of the, the heartbeat message of the Sermon on the Mount. The world is sideways. Here's a way for your heart to be restructured so God's will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. You all remember what happens after Jesus preaches that? This is a fantastic message up on the mountain about these heavenly kingdom realities. He goes immediately there to healing people. And not just healing them physically, because you can look at the physical ailment. So he heals the disease of leprosy. He heals someone who's passed out. He heals a, a boy who's having seizures. So you can look at the different diagnoses, but then you have men and women. 
So there's gender issues that he's dealing with there. He has socially outcast people. He heals people of different races, people of different religions. Jesus is not only healing them physically, he's restoring them into a unified, diverse, harmonious community. This is what the kingdom of God is. This is what justice is. He not only proclaims that message, but he embodies it, going to those who suffer injustice, displacement, and oppression. Like, Matthew 12, 18, quoting Isaiah 42, 1. This is a one-verse summary of what Jesus has been up to in Matthew 1 through 10 to this point. And from here, using the words of the prophet, Matthew helps us see what was the plan for how Jesus would accomplish this mission to proclaim, to bring justice to the nations. In verse 19, he says, he will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He's a silent savior in some ways. The justice of God will not come through volume or violence. So just beware those who in the name of God would elicit you to violence or volume. Say you need to shout, you need to harm, you need to hurt. Justice will not come through a fight or by force. This, This servant will do something else entirely. He won't be like revolutionaries of our day, or his day, who raise their voice and rattle their swords. He will do something much the opposite. Verse 20, he will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Notice how invading armies don't try to go to the strongest place of defense. Anybody watch Planet Earth? Anybody? When you got the hyena episode, the lion episode, and the wildebeests come, they're not like, let's find the strongest bull wildebeest and take him down. They look for the baby that was born with three legs and one of them is too short and he's gimping and they can't, you know, they go to the weakest one. Those seeking to conquer, to rule, they prey on the weak. They find the weakest reed and they break it and crush it. They find the candle that's just barely flickering and they blow it out because it's the easiest to. This is not the way of Jesus. You noticed how over and over again he turns away from the powerful. He turns away from the strongest reed and he moves instead to the weakest reed. He doesn't sniff out a flickering candle. He cups his hands around it to protect it as he breathes new life into it. It's almost entirely upside down to how we would see the world. He doesn't go to the strong, he goes to the weak. He doesn't crush the broken, the hurting, the confused. He protects them. And in this way, though it seems upside down and unexpected to us, we are promised the greatest victory. Verse 20 continues, finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. It's so confusing to me why justice has become an uncomfortable word in the church lately when it's just such a deeply biblical word. What is justice? It's the proper ordering of human society. It's God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you, if you take that seriously, what that will mean is as a Christian, when you see something that's disordered in the world, someone being oppressed, injustice, something just not being right, it means you will try to do something about it. And that can be overwhelming, especially uh, just I'm just one person. What can I do? What difference can I make? But we have this incredible promise that Jesus won't make justice possible. Is that verse still up there? 
right? Finally, he'll give you a shot at justice. No, it says he, this one who will come, he will cause justice to be victorious. And what does that mean for us? Verse 21, it means, therefore, that his name will be the hope of all the world. I'm so excited, y'all, because Advent's coming, right? It's, I know we ain't got Thanksgiving yet, but Christmas music is on at my house. And at Advent, we get to sing what I think is perhaps one of the most beautiful lines in any hymn ever written. Chains shall he break. Why? Because he's made the slave your brother. And in his name, all oppression will cease. That's not, a, that's not an out there promise only. That's a right now and a right here promise. In the name of Jesus. Have you ever looked through the course of human history and seen all that the name of Jesus has changed? All of the institutions, all of the strongholds of evil that have crumbled under the name of Jesus. His name will be the hope of all the world. What does God do with all his power and holiness when he is betrayed? How does he respond? He comes to the mess as a baby. He grows and learns wisdom. He starts his life as a refugee. More than a decade he spent on the run as a refugee. He goes to the bent and the bruised, the oppressed, the overlooked, the hurting, the ostracized, the outcast, and he preaches to them. He heals them. He restores them. And what does it get him? What, how do we respond when the God of the universe, whom we betrayed, comes to heal us and reconcile us, and he loves us this way? It gets him a criminal's execution on a cross and a burial in a borrowed grave. And it can just, it can all feel so upside down to us that this was the plan of God. Not swords, but sacrificial love will be the plan. What do we make of this? What does this mean? There's a passage in Hebrews 12. This, this passage has been bothering me for months, you guys. And I, Hebrews 12 has a, it's a really famous verse for a reason, but I just kept thinking about it. In verse 2, it's talking about how do we move beyond sin? How do we take off this sin that just slows us down and keeps us enslaved? He says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. So how do we, what do we make of this? How do we continue to follow Jesus? What are we supposed to do? Well, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. That means a sense of focus on him, remembering what's true of him, immersing yourself in the story, particularly when you're confused or life hasn't turned out the way. Or you ever have, you don't have to raise your hands here, but that like, what are you doing, God? Where are you, God? You immerse yourself back in the story. When that, if you're following Jesus with any degree of sincerity, he'll be telling you to do things that don't feel normal to you. You should stop doing that with her. You shouldn't say that to him. You need to call her. Like, he'll say things that seem confusing to you and countercultural to you. And, and you remember this story. You rehearse it. You immerse yourself in it, especially when life 
feels down or confusing. Can you put that back up, please. You remember that he initiated your faith? This was his idea. Did you hear what we prayed in the liturgy before? Not only did God choose you, it made him happy to do so. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. He wants you. He desires you. So you remember, God picked me. He knew I'm not doing anything that's surprising to him or catching him off guard. You remember, not only did he pick you, but he said he would perfect your faith. You stumble through all this knowing one day you will have pure faith. You will have a clean heart, a sincere heart, a perfect faith. And then this is the, this is the, the big one here for me. Because of the, someone say the word, because of the what? Joy. Joy. Let's do that one more time. Because of the? Joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Which That should feel a little weird. Because it was going to make him so happy, Jesus endured the cross. Here's a couple of reasons why this should make you, un- make you uncomfortable. There's, in the context of Hebrews, I think this means two things, what the joy awaiting him was. The first one that I think sh- will make you uncomfortable is you. Getting you. Having you in the family. He wanted you so much. Having you in the family would make him so happy he endured the cross. And then the author of Hebrews will say that Jesus loved God so much, he wanted to give God a present. He wanted to present God something to show him how much he loved him. Anyone know what that present was? It was you. God loved, Jesus loved the Father so much, and he loved you so much, that to show his Father how much he loved him, he died on a cross, to secure your place in the family of God. And then what does it mean that he disregarded its shame? Your translation may say he scorned its shame. I think you could say, because it was going to make Jesus so happy, he flipped the cross on its head. And here's what I mean. Like, when's the last time you thought about how awful it is to die on a cross? You know, Jesus hung there naked. You know, he's the God of the universe suffocated to death. Isaiah prophesied this would happen, and he said that the Messiah, this suffering servant, he would be beaten so badly that you wouldn't be able to recognize him. How would it it seem to you if I walked in here and I had a big electric chair hanging around my neck? Some of you would think that was weird, I'm guessing. And you don't have to raise your hands. I'm guessing several of you have crosses around your neck right now. Do you know what a horrific symbol of execution that is? Do you know what a grotesque image that is? Until a Middle Eastern carpenter in his early 30s was executed on one. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And that horrific symbol of the brutality that the human heart is capable of has now become the single greatest symbol of hope the world has ever known. He took something ugly and he flipped it on its head to the point where it can be jewelry for us now. What once seemed weak and shameful is now the hope of the world. And some of what this means, if God can take the most horrific symbol of death and brutality and transform it into something beautiful and wonderful, you have to stay open to the possibility that he's doing something in your mess too. Though he may seem silent, he's working. Though he may seem upside down and unexpected, he is working. 
Maybe to try to put it a little bit simply or clearly, we must become a people who receive confusion as a normal part of Christianity. I'm not saying celebrate it. I'm not saying pursue it. I'm not saying, let's like, oh, they're a great Christian because of how confused they are. That's not what I'm trying to say. But like, we cannot know the mind of God in full because he's God and you're 38. You know what I mean? Like, you're a human. You cannot know the full mind of God. We can know what he's revealed to us. And some of what he's revealed to us real clearly is that life is going to be hard for everybody and it will often be confusing. It's normal Christianity to feel confused. So I think one of the best ways we can handle that is to become a people who begin to look for God in the, in the ordinary aspects of our lives. Have you just seen how disinterested Jesus is with grandiose displays of power or aggression or authority? He just seems much more comfortable in the day-in, uh, day-out day rhythms of ordinary life. The first, what was Jesus' reconciliation plan with Peter post-resurrection? It was breakfast. Like, that's the first thing Jesus says to his great betrayer. Peter, bring some fish. You want to have breakfast with me? Even when he does the miraculous, see what it says? He, back here in the beginning, he warned them not to reveal who he was. Even when he does the miraculous, he's like, just keep that to yourself a little. If you know the Bible at all, let's try this for a couple of minutes. I don't know, four more minutes. Give me four more minutes, please. Uh, what does Jesus do when he's tired? He sleeps. Do you know that about Jesus? You can go read the story of the woman at the well in John. It says Jesus was tired from walking. And so what did he do? He sat down. You know what Jesus did when he got thirsty? Drink water. Last week, what did Jesus do when he got hungry? Thank you from the mouth of babes. That was one of the coolest experiences of my life. That's exactly right. How perfect was that? He ate. When Jesus is faced with a need, most of the time he meets it. You know, like, Jesus lived in some ways a very ordinary life. Yes, the miraculous happened, but he would tell people to be quiet about it. He wasn't that interested in the miracles. So, like, consider God's calling on your life, sure, but not to the exclusion of the ordinary acts of faithfulness right, right in front of you. I knew a guy in Louisville once where he felt God called him to start this certain ministry, and he didn't see his family for several years, and his wife kept begging him, you know, like, you need to know your children. You need to come home. And he was like, you know, God just told me to sacrifice my family for the sake of the kingdom, and then she left me. And I was like, that's not the kingdom of God. You know, we can sit here and wait for these ambiguous callings about, he's going to do blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, listen, are you serving in your church? Are you giving to your church? Are you, are you trying to grow in love for your spouse? Are you being a parent? You know, if you're a parent, nobody else gets to be a parent to your kid. Nobody else can be their mom. Nobody else can be their dad. Like, that's black and white direct. So I'm all for, I'm pro-calling, right? Like, my quote-unquote calling moved me across the country and all kinds of stuff. Like, but let's not be a people who wait for our calling and miss ordinary Christianity. Just regular, everyday faithfulness. That's right in front of us. You guys remember that book, Radical? I got yelled at between the services because somebody from the church 
where the pastor who wrote that book was there. And they're like, that's my pastor you're talking about. It's a fine book. I'm not against radical. But do you remember where there was that, I'm a little bit against radical, I guess. <laughs> just to be fair. It's just too much. Um, because I got verses, like, you can, y'all can go find this one. You can test me on this. Make it your aim to live a quiet life. Work with your hands. Mind your own business. That was Paul's charge to a young church planter. Not build a platform, start a blog, and change the world. You remember there was this period of time where every book was basically... You ever notice how we don't have a magazine that every year publishes the 50 churches that pray the most? We have the 50 fastest growing churches. And I'm like, well, gosh, I don't know. Who, who cares, really? The number one church, they became the number one church because they gave you a, a website that you could log into and experience like online chat community groups. And I'm not saying that's wrong or anything, but now they've got churches all over the world. I'm not saying that's sinful or that church is dumb. I'm not saying any of that stuff, but it's like, so that counts now and they're the fastest growing, so they win. What is it about American Christianity that it's going to be bigger, better, faster? And have you ever noticed how few people are like, I feel like God's called me to be a faithful worker in Sojourn Kids for 25 years and really invest in the next generation? And I've been here, I've been at Sojourn for 10 years, and I've yet to have a seminary student, a male seminary student, come up to me and say, God has called me to serve in whatever capacity this church needs for the season that I'm here. It's always a 23-year-old who comes in and says, God's called me to preach. When can I preach here? It's like, isn't that interesting? Like, what is God doing that he's called so many men to preach and he hasn't called any men to serve in student ministry? Like, I I forgot that that's the only thing that... You see what I'm saying? What is regular Christianity? Being a regular Christian simply means doing the regular things Christians have done for 2,000 years. So if you're curious about your calling in life, I will tell you what your calling is. Go to church. Read your Bible. Pray. And if you pray for a while, have you tried being quiet as you pray? If you don't hear the voice of God speaking to you when you pray, that could be an invitation for you to just talk less and listen more. Immerse yourself in community. Do that for 30 or 40 years, and you'll be a lot more like Jesus than you are today. That is regular, historic, 2,000-year-old Christianity. It's, it's Orphan Sunday today. We got a great verse if you need something more concrete. James 1.27, what's my calling? Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. We got a prayer booklet out there. Like, yeah, I need to do something. We got a whole book. It's free about how to pray for orphans and what your part in, in it might be. Go to childplace.org. Figure out what you can do here locally. You can go on the app under ministries and figure out how to join the adoption foster care. Go find out how to care for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Do you know we have a member here who runs a nursing home over on Main Street? He says, it would be awesome if someone would come and sing Christmas carols to these people that have been forgotten. Maybe, you know we have people who call this church home, but they're too sick or incapacitated they can't get to church. And so Travis goes and visits people by himself because they can't come and gather. Maybe you should go visit some of these people with Pastor Travis. Like, it's right in front of us. What do you want to do? If that all seems too much, go serve and sojourn kids. You know, we have 
200 kids. And most of us here serve. This isn't like a guilt, oh my gosh, the ship is sinking. Like 200 kids that we are going to unleash into high school over the next several years. What could happen there? What could you do? What does it mean to refuse to let the world corrupt you? I think in the context of today's passage, it just means don't let it break you. You're bent over. You feel like your candle is flickering and the world seeks to come and crush you and take advantage of you. But that is not God Almighty. A bruised reed he will not break. When we are weak, he is strong. He will provide. So come to him. This is why every week we end with communion to root ourselves in the very presence of Christ, to remember his provision, to wake up our body, not settle for going through the motions, but to experience something supernatural. And if you're confused, if you feel lost and upside down, maybe all you need to do is just ask for God to revive you. Restore the joy of your salvation. Wake you up and grant you peace. And I just find it so breathtaking that the way God calls us to remember his cosmic salvation is something so incredibly ordinary. A loaf of bread. How would Jesus call us to remember what he's done for us? He would take a loaf of bread and say to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Perhaps the most ordinary thing we can think of. Now every time you see bread, I want you to think of my body broken for you. And when you eat something even as simple as bread, I want you to remember me. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and in the same way, he said, this, this cup is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. This is an everyday drink for them. What do you drink every day? Maybe it needs to be milk. It needs to be water. When you see this everyday drink, remember that my blood was shed for you, and now you're safe. Not because of what you've done, not because of how radical or regular your Christianity is, but because my blood has been shed for you. This, this is our hope. The body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was shed for us. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left and your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.